The following sermon is from Four Mile Creek Baptist Church in Moss Point, Mississippi. It is our prayer that you encounter Jesus during this message and that you be transformed by His truth. To learn more about Four Mile Creek, visit us online at fourmilecreek.org. Today we're talking about the Lord's Supper, and we're going to be all over the Bible. All over the Bible. And in my research this week, one of the things that I was I was kind of perturbed about, there's a word you don't always often hear, perturbed. I was just kind of perturbed about it. You, you can find very little that has been preached about or written on about the Lord's Supper in evangelical and Baptist circles. There are plenty of people who have written about the Lord's Supper. There are plenty of people who have taught about the Lord's Supper and preached about the Lord's Supper, but very few people in Baptist and evangelical circles in my research, operative phrase there, my research, have have spoken about, written on this. And, and if they do, they do it just like I have done and we have done here, of we give it a, a short little treatment right before we observe the Lord's Supper. And if we were to ask people uh, what exactly is the Lord's Supper, there's no telling what you might get. Uh, most Baptists, we understand that it is uh, the uh, one of two ordinances commanded by the Lord Jesus. We observe it every now and then, but we don't really know why we observe it uh, at the frequency or things like that. And then we don't really fully understand the meaning behind it, I'm afraid. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, one of the things that has been uh, uh, included in Luke's writing under inspiration of God the Holy Spirit is... Uh, is attention given to the reality that the early church was observing the Lord's Supper. And so we've talked about salvation. Salvation is the rescue of people by God from the power and penalty of sin. After you're saved, you're baptized. So baptism is the the immersion of the believer into water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is an outward expression of the internal saving work of Holy God on the believer's life. Now that you've been saved, now that you've been baptized, now we talk about the Lord's Supper. It's a part of what we do. It's an opportunity for us to proclaim the Lord's death, to celebrate uh, all that He has accomplished, to look forward to His second coming. Kayla and I, we've been going through uh, a devotional uh, every week in, in our family devotion uh, from Charles Spurgeon. And she pointed out, and she didn't know I was going to say this. I didn't know I was going to say it until I just thought of it. But she pointed out that when you read Spurgeon, he always has an eye toward the kingdom to come. In everything Charles Spurgeon wrote and preached on, there's always an eye toward the kingdom to come. And the Lord's Supper allows us an opportunity to not only celebrate what Jesus has done, but to look forward to the kingdom to come and His second coming. And so we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper today. Now there are two verses uh, in the book of Acts, at least two, that deal with this. And we've already looked at one. So if you will, in the book of Acts, turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And... uh, It's right there, and we don't always recognize it, but it's right there. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is is the early days of the church, a a little while after Pentecost. And Luke records that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That's another way of saying the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. It's right there. Then if you turn over to Acts chapter 20, Well, we haven't even done the chapters in between. Don't worry, we're going to get to them. But we're going to go to Acts chapter 20 and in verse 7. Listen to what Luke says. Luke says that on the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. They assembled to observe 
the Lord's Supper. And today we're going to give a treatment of this. Now, I'm already confident, Lord forgive me, that I'm probably going to butcher this. I hope that's not the case, and I don't want to butcher it. But I also recognize that I might very well butcher this thing, and that's not my intention. My, my goal in this sermon is to tell you what the Lord's Supper is, what it symbolizes, and how we come to the table. I want us to understand what we do when we come to this table. I want us to have a renewed appreciation for it. Listen, I take very seriously the Lord's Supper. I was on a mission trip back in 2022, so last year, and we were in Las Vegas, Nevada. We were helping a church plant there, and uh, I was... Uh, I'll just say it. I was just told I was going on this trip. I was the staff member. I didn't have a choice. I was going on the trip. I didn't want to be on the trip, but the Lord had different plans and sent me on the trip. And uh, and I really didn't have any clear directions uh, on this trip. And let me tell you something. When you've spent uh, five years coordinating and executing and planning trips, when you're brought on a trip and you're not given clear directions, sometimes you can get a little frustrated. And we were there that first night, and the guy that was leading this trip, it wasn't a wrong decision or a bad decision. I just wouldn't have made the decision. I, I just thought it was poor planning is what it was. And I love this brother, and, uh, and I got a little frustrated with him. That was on a Saturday night. And Sunday morning, I got up, and the Holy Spirit said, you have Lord's Supper that you're helping administer in a few hours. Yeah. And you did not honor me last night. You shouldn't have done what you did. You're right, Lord. I'll go make it right. And so I went and I made it right. And he didn't think anything of it. He said, I, I didn't think anything about what you said. I just thought you were tired and just a little annoyed. And, and from there, I said, no, I, I was annoyed and I was tired, but I shouldn't have responded the way I did. And so I always take an opportunity for the Lord's Supper just in my own personal life to say, Lord, is there any... Sin I need to confess and repent of. This week I sat on my couch and I, in, in my office and I did that. I said, Lord, any sin I need to confess, any sin I need to repent of because I want to come to the table clean and pure. I want to come here. I want to take this serious. I don't want to eat and drink judgment upon myself. And when we're not careful, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about what it is, what it symbolizes, and how you come to the table. Now, just like these last two weeks that I've preached, uh, I've got a definition for you. whoop de doo And guess what? I'm going to help you. When I send out the email tomorrow, I'm going to send out these three definitions because some of you can't write as fast as I've been talking. So what is the Lord's Supper? What is our working definition of the Lord's Supper? I'm glad you asked. Our working definition is this, that the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is a symbolically visible proclamation of the Lord's death and impending return that is observed regularly and frequently by believers. Again, the Lord's Supper is a symbolically visible proclamation of the Lord's death and impending return that is observed regularly and frequently by believers. In the school of theology, this is called the memorialistic view. There are a few different views of the Lord's Supper. We're not going to go into those. This is the view that Southern Baptists affirm. It's in the Baptist faith and message. I've, uh, this is my working definition, though, because uh, theirs is 
double this length and we need it to condense it. But the Lord's Supper is a symbolically visible proclamation of the Lord's death and impending return that is observed regularly and frequently by believers. So what is it? Well, there you have it. Now we're going to take this in turn. Ready? First off, it's an ordinance for believers. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It is an ordinance for believers. It is an ordinance for believers. In Luke chapter 22, if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 22. So that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the Gospels. In Luke 22, beginning in verse 14, this is what the Bible records. That when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus commands believers to observe the Lord's Supper. It is an ordinance. It is a command. Jesus commanded this. Jesus said, Do this. We observe the Lord's Supper as a matter of obedience. Now, it is certainly more than obedience, but it is certainly not less than obedience. There are other things at play in the Lord's Supper. There are things that we have to do. One of the things that we're going to see in just a moment is that we examine ourselves. We make sure that we are clean and we are pure before the Lord. We make sure that we are in right standing with our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. We... We do this because the Lord Jesus has commanded it. Paul, under inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, and listen, regardless of who said it in the Bible, can I just tell you something? Every word of the Bible is God's words. That wasn't even proper grammar. Every word in the Bible, every word in the there we go, every word in the Bible is the word of God. Every word. So regardless of who said it, or who wrote it, rather, it's God's words. A lot of people, this is just a tangent here, but I'm going to say it because it's a tasty little rabbit trail. Everybody that I've, not, not everybody, but a lot of people will say, you know, you need to read the red part of the Bible. You need to read the red part of the Bible. What they're saying is you need to read the words of Jesus. Yes, you do. But can I just tell you something? Go to Genesis. God is speaking. In the beginning, God created and God said, let there be light. And God said every word of Scripture is God's words. Every word. Every word belongs to Him. So Paul, when he writes, he's writing on behalf of God as God the Holy Spirit inspires him. And he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six that as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Do it. Do it often. Every time you do it, remember why you're doing it. The Lord's Supper, it is an ordinance for believers. It is also a symbolic proclamation that is observed regularly and frequently. Now we're going to get more into what it symbolizes in just a moment, but it is a symbolic proclamation. What does it symbolize? At, at, at a base level, it, it proclaims the Lord's death until He comes. Okay? 
but it's done regularly and frequently. Now, we need to talk about this because there is no topic in Christendom that is more divisive than the Lord's Supper. It is observed by almost every legitimate denomination, but yet it divides us. Who can participate? How can you participate in these things? But yet we observe the same thing. Is it a sacrament? Is it a means by which grace is given to us? Can I just tell you, it's not a sacrament. It's not a sacrament. It is an ordinance. It's commanded. We do not receive grace by participating in the Lord's Supper. So how regularly and frequently is it observed? This is also a point of contention. Some denominations observe it weekly. Some observe it every time they gather for the preached word of God. Some observe it every other week. Some observe it monthly. Our brothers and sisters right down the road at Escataba observe it monthly. Some observe it every other month. Some, like us, we observe it at least quarterly. We're going to observe it today, and we just observed it on the first Sunday in June. So we're observing it more than once a quarter. Some observe it whenever, but whenever you do it, you need to remember what you're proclaiming. You're proclaiming great truths of the gospel. You're proclaiming basically 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. He has ascended into heaven. And guess what? He's coming again. The story did not end with the death and burial of Christ. It didn't even end with the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. It will continue. There is coming a day in which the Lord Jesus Christ will visibly return. He will call his church to himself. Everybody will confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will bow the knee. Jesus will reign forever victoriously in a new heaven and a new earth. And all those who, who refused to surrender their hearts and minds to the Lord Jesus, they'll spend an eternity separated from him in, him in hell. That's what's coming. And when we observe the Lord's Supper, that's what we're proclaiming. We're making a statement. Sometimes you try to make a statement by the shirt you wear or the socks you wear or the shoes you wear or the flag you fly. We were in Mobile yesterday. Can I just tell you something? This is one of the most important statements we ever make as a church. This baptism and gathering for the preached word of God. Which, by the way, when you enter in a Baptist church, it's not a mistake that things are the way that they are. Just a little history lesson. In most Baptist churches, and nobody go and buy one because we, 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 we don't need one, um, but in most Baptist churches, when you enter that center aisle of the sanctuary, what are the three things you always see in almost every Baptist church? You see a supper table, that's generally brown, and in some churches, unfortunately, has a, an honor of somebody and somebody. But yet it says, do this in remembrance of me, talking about Jesus on the front. But you see a supper table that says, do this in remembrance of me. Elevate it, right behind it, what do you see? You see a pulpit. And behind the pulpit, elevate it yet again, what do you see? You see a baptistry. In most Baptist churches, that's what you see. Why? Because these three things are central to what we do and believe as Baptists. The Lord's Supper is a symbolically visible proclamation. It proclaims the Lord's death. It is observed regularly and frequently. So regardless of how often we observe it, we're observing great truths about the gospel. It's an ordinance for believers. 
That's what it is. Now, what does it symbolize? Some of you are thinking, this seems like it's going to be a short sermon. I don't know yet. I'll find out when you know. We're going to be observing the supper in just a minute. What does it symbolize? Well, I've already told you at least two or three times, it symbolically proclaims the Lord's death and impending return. That's what it symbolizes. That's what it symbolizes, the Lord's death. Remember when the Lord's Supper happened? It was at that last Passover meal that Jesus observed. He's about to be betrayed. And at that Passover meal, what Jews will do is they will recount the story of Israel in Egyptian slavery. They will say, we were in slavery, God brought us out. And they'll also specifically tell the story of that final curse that God had promised. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, what you know is this, that, that and this is, um, let me get it right, it's in Exodus 12. We're going to read in just a moment, uh, just a verse of it, so you don't have to flip there. But in Exodus 12, God tells them, He gives them the instructions for the Passover. And this is what He tells them. You need to take an unblemished animal, and you're going to slaughter it. And you're going to take the blood of that animal, and you're going to put it on your doorpost. And when that Passover angel comes over your house and sees the blood, he's going to pass over you, and no curse will befall you. And here at this Passover meal, God's getting ready to bring his people out from under the sin and penalty, uh, the, the, the curse and penalty of sin once and for all. That's what he's getting ready to do. In Exodus 12, 13, this is what the Bible tells us, that the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike you from the land. It proclaims the Lord's death. And so using those elements found at the table, the Lord Jesus demonstrates to his disciples exactly what's about to go down. Listen, he's the master teacher. He's the master teacher. Sometimes we can't think in abstract terms and we need some concrete examples. And that's okay. He understands that. And so he says, hey, here's this bread. In Luke twenty-two nineteen. he says, this is my bread. Uh, my, my, this bread is my body, which has been given for you. It's been given for you. And, you know, listen, he doesn't have a loaf of bunny bread there. I used to think bunny bread was the bee's knees when I was a kid. Who even says bee's knees anymore? But anyway, I used to think it was the bee's knees. And now you know, you, you know where it's at? Honey wheat. Sara Lee honey wheat. I think that's the brand we buy or something. But you didn't ask for that. I'm going to have a loaf of honey wheat on my pew next week. <laughs> that was funny. Um, Lord, forgive us. It wasn't a loaf of, good night, that was just funny. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a loaf of bunny bread there. It was, it was unleavened matzah bread. We, we used that when we observed Monday, Thursday uh, earlier this year. It's just unleavened bread, and, and that bread looks a very particular way. It's striped, and it's pierced, and it's a teaching analogy for God's people because Jesus would be pierced. He would, he would be stricken because of sin. And when he says, take this bread... This is my body which has been given for you and, and it's broken there. Jesus is saying, my body's going to be broken. It's going to be pierced. It's going to be struck and there are going to be uh, whelps on it and scars on it and all these things. And it's a call back to Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, if you wouldn't mind turning there. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 and uh, 4. 
4 and 5, I'm sorry. The prophet records these words that yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. We in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our rebellion, is what my translation says, but I've memorized a different version. Crushed because of our iniquities, and punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. This becomes an example, a concrete example for those at that table, and even for us today, of what went down. Jesus was pierced, he was beaten. Let me tell you something you, you, you don't want to go through a Roman crucifixion. I mean, assuming that you can even make it to the cross, you certainly don't want to go through it. Because they're going to put you through it before you even get to the cross. They're going to beat you. They're going to humiliate you. They're going to put that cross upon your uh, 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 back that is just shredded and flesh is hanging all over the place and you're bleeding profusely and you're probably in shock and don't even feel what's going on at this point. And you're going to have to take this cross and carry it up a hill where they're going to put you down on it and they're going to nail some stakes through you and put you up. And then when they get tired of you dying because they, 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 they want to go home and eat, they'll put a spear through your side to make sure you're dead. If the crucifixion won't get regardless, you're not getting off that cross. If you don't die from crucifixion, you're going to die some other way, but you're not getting off the cross. And Jesus is getting ready to do that. And they, they see this, and I'm sure that when they see the crucifixion happen, that things begin to click, and they begin to say, okay. And I don't think everything was clicking yet for them. Because after the crucifixion, and at the arrest, a lot of them scatter, and they flee, and they go into hiding. But yet the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to remember that His body was broken for our sin. Jesus was treated as if he had personally committed every sin from all of time from every person who's ever lived. Every, every sin from all of time, every loose word, every murder, every abuse, everything. He was personally treated as if he had personally done it. His body was broken. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But it wasn't the only thing that he was there illustrating. It just wasn't uh, that his body is the bread, it's that his blood is the wine. Jesus said that this wine is the new covenant that's been poured out for you. You know, there is uh, quite a bit in Christianity um, that is offensive to many, and I don't think there's anything more offensive uh, to the masses than that of um, the crucifixion. Often people will say, how could such a loving God require such a sacrifice? I think that the more proper question is, how could he not require such a sacrifice? And in fact, how could he allow us to come by way of Jesus? Why would he do that? I mean, our offense is so grievous, and yet he has loved us even yet while we were still sinners. That's the amazing truth of the gospel. It's often been said that 
the cross is one of the most scandalous things in history, and it is, that the sinless Savior would die for me. The sinless Savior died so that my sinful soul would be counted free. And he, he, he does this, and, and the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, and we read it a few weeks ago, but in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, the Bible tells us, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. When Jesus went into that holy of holies, he went into it. And he didn't go into the one that we built at the instruction of God. He went to the heavenly one. And he entered the most holy place once and for all time. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. They had to sacrifice again every year. And all that sacrifice would do was atone. It would cover up. I have a scar on my forearm from doing disaster relief about a week ago. And uh, right now you don't know, do you? Because it's not a bad scar, but it's a scar. But it's covered up. That's atonement. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath. And I believe that when Jesus died, there was an element of atonement in which our sin was covered but the primary element at play was propitiation, that God's wrath has been, has been satisfied. His wrath is his settled response to sin. If you sin, you will die, says the Lord. His settled response is that we will die for the wages of sin is death, the Bible says, Romans 6.23. And Jesus' blood has satisfied that wrath. It has covered our sin. It has satisfied his wrath so that when we approach him in faith, the blood of Jesus covers us. The blood of Jesus speaks for us. But the author of Hebrews goes on. That he did not enter by the blood of goats and calves, verse 12, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. He obtained it. It's eternal. There's not another sacrifice required. For if by the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Oh, how much more? How much more? There it is. There it is. Don't ever miss that. When you speak of the things of God and you begin asking him for things and you begin going to him, you say, Lord, I just want to be closer to you. Lord, I want to walk more faithfully with you. Here's the reality. Whatever you're asking of God, whatever you're asking of God, he can do so much more, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, than we can ever ask, think, or imagine. And the author of Hebrews says, how much more will the blood of Jesus, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from, dead's, from dead words so that we might serve the living God? How much more? How much more will it cleanse us? It'll cleanse us perfectly, completely, without any reservation there is nothing the blood of the perfect lamb cannot cleanse the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to remember this Jesus says that the bread is his body which has been given for, for you that the wine is his blood that has been poured out for you it has covered you it has dealt totally with your sin it is finished there is no more sacrifice required period full stop. It's done. And yet here's what we often do. We often live as though there's another sacrifice required. 
This is what we do. You know, Lord, I remember my sin. I mean, it's been thrown into the sea of your forgetfulness. But Lord, I remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I know that your Bible says and that your word says, Lord, that I will no longer remember the sins of my youth. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. Lord, that that you have forgiven me of the sins of my youth, Psalm 25. But Lord, I'm just going to keep remembering it because maybe by remembering it, I will add to your completed work and I will be sufficiently punished for my sin. And what you're doing is you're making a mockery of the blood of Jesus. That's what you're doing. There is no more sacrifice required. There is no other sacrifice for sin. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. You can't give enough. You can't be good enough. I was sharing the gospel with a fellow who said, you know, I think that to get to heaven, you just have to be good enough. I said, well, bro, how good you got to be? Well, I don't know. I said, that's the problem. <laughs> you don't know. You can never be good enough. But Jesus has died once and for all. His shed blood covers us. And covers our sin. He forgives us our sin. It has satisfied the wrath of God. God will never dis- God will never punish His children for sin. He will discipline us, but He will never punish us. When He disciplines us, it's always with an eye toward restoration and reconciliation. The blood of Jesus covers you. That's what this represents. When we come, we remember that His body was broken for our sin. That His blood was shed for our sin. That it's paid, it's done, it's finished. So how do you come to the table? How do you come to the table? How do you come to the table? The first point's real easy because it's not going to require me to get a little messy. You come as a born-again believer. You come as a believer. If you're not a believer, you're not welcome to the table. I love you, the Lord Jesus loves you, but you're not welcome to the table. This table is off limits for unbelievers. It can also be off limits for believers as well, but it is certainly off limits for unbelievers. If you have not been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, by faith in him, you are not welcome to the table. You must come believing. You must come having confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, Romans 10, 9, and believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You must come believing. I remember as a kid, I, I talked to my sister yesterday, and uh, we talked for about an hour, but I remember as a kid, we, uh, we went to church, and uh, I, I didn't know anything. I was just, I was yay high. And, uh, it was Lord's Supper. And I remember Brother Gene Richards, my pastor, uh, growing up. Brother Gene standing up there. And it was, I, I remember that place being packed. I don't know why, but I remember it being packed. I mean, shoulder to shoulder. Had to sit on my sister's lap. There wasn't a seat for me. And, and uh, they were passing that plate. Now, you know, we, we're a little more bougie here. You know, you just have to pick up one thing. You've got the bread and the wine together, but... They would pass two different plates. One with that little wafer that didn't taste like anything. These don't taste like anything either. But, uh, but that little wafer and then that little glass of orange juice. And I wanted one. And, and I remember my sister telling me, you can't have one. You can't have one. I just, I was so persistent. She didn't tell me why, but I wanted one. And so she gave me one. Probably should have done that. But she gave me one. And as soon as I got that little cracker, 
Brother Gene hadn't prayed for it, said eat or anything like this. My sister, my sister said, you're not supposed to do that. And she put her hand out like that, and I just spit it out in her hand. I know, and I, and I ate it when it came time, too. But, um, but you have to come as a believer. You have to come as a believer. For ignorant things like that where you just didn't know any better, I, I think the Lord understands that. I think he gives some grace there. But if you're not a believer, you're not welcome to the table. I don't think my sister knew any better. I know I didn't. I don't think our friends knew any better. We were just there and we were there. That's what you're supposed to do. But you come to the table believing. So let me ask you today, do you believe? Have you been saved? Have you been redeemed? The Bible says that if you haven't, you're destined for an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And that is a very real place. It is a hot place. It is not a place you want to go. And you know, listen, we often think that in hell we... People are going to say, oh, I made the wrong decision. No, you will just grow in your hatred for God. That, that's what will happen. And the Bible says that if you recognize you're a sinner, if you will confess your sin to the Lord, if you will recognize that Jesus is who he says that he is, if you will surrender your heart and your mind and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And you can do that right in your seat. How do you do it? You believe. Jesus says that the work of God is that you believe in the one whom God has sent. You believe. We can debate about how all those things happen and all of that. Jesus says, if you will believe, you will be saved. That's what Jesus says. Believe and be saved. You can be saved today. So if you don't know Jesus and you want to partake of this, you need to get that right first. And you can do that right in your pew. Confess your sin to the Lord. Confess your dependence upon him. Confess that he is Lord. You are not. Trust him to forgive you. Ask him to forgive you. And indeed he will. But here's the part that's a little more difficult. Because unbeliever, I'm not speaking to you. Believer, I'm speaking to you. And this is a little messy. You have to come clean and pure. If you are dirty, not physically dirty, but spiritually dirty, don't come to this table. For your sake... Don't come to this table. Paul says that if you eat and drink of this table in an unworthy manner, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. If you're dirty, do not come. The psalmist David writes in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, and I used to have a problem with these verses. But in Psalm 24, 3 through 4, the Bible tells us that who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. You have to come clean. Who makes you clean? The Lord Jesus. Confess your sin to him and he will forgive. Seek to make restitution as he leads you to. Seek to make reconciliation possible if at all. But you come and you confess your sin to the Lord. And Paul addressed this, by the way, about coming clean and pure to the table in 1 Corinthians 11. We're not going to read all that. We're not going to read from it. I'm just going to give you the synopsis of it. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul records on the Lord's Supper. It's one of the earliest recordings of that night, actually. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's got a bone to pick with him. Let me tell you something. I would not have wanted to be pastor of First Baptist Church Corinth uh, at all. Every Baptist preacher says that, but boy, I mean it. I would not have wanted to be pastor of First Baptist Church Corinth. And uh, here's what's going on. They're coming together. They're observing the Lord's Supper. But when they come... 
Some of them who have means and who have food at home are overeating and overdrinking. In fact, those people are not only overeating, we call that gluttony. One day I might do a sermon on that. Very few times do you ever hear a Baptist church talk about gluttony, but we, we really ought to be talking about it. And then they're also getting drunk. They, they are consuming wine to the point of drunkenness, and they're making a mockery of the table. And then those who don't have means at home, those who don't have the food, those who don't have resources, they are leaving as hungry as they came. And Paul says that they are eating and drinking without discerning the body. And that's a problem. Here, here's the point of what Paul is saying. They were not living with each other in mind. They were not living with each other in mind. How we live as a community of believers matters. It matters. Your personal holiness matters and my personal holiness matters. Husbands, how you uh, shepherd your family matters. How I shepherd my family matters. Wives, how you submit, love, and serve your husband and your children matters. How my wife does those things matter. We are dependent and interdependent upon each other. How we live matters. We do not need to be participating in sin willingly and knowingly. That's why the psalmist says, protect your servant from both intentional and unintentional sins. Do not make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul says in Romans. How we live matters. We need to stay away from intentional and unintentional sin. We need to be mindful of the consciences of others. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about things in which Scripture clearly prohibits and defines as sin. I'm thinking of things in which you have Christian freedom to do as you deem best, as long as your conscience doesn't condemn you. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about meat sacrifice to idols. Uh, in Corinth, it's a place for uh, idol worship and all these uh, animals and, and things are being sacrificed to idols and what's left over to be sold in the marketplace. For Paul, it was no big deal to eat of the meat. He'd go buy, he'd put down some money, he'd get a lamb chop, go home, cook it, and be happy. For some people in Corinth, that was a big deal. They could not, in good conscience, eat meat sacrificed to idols. Though they were not worshiping an idol, though they were saved and born again, they could not do it. So Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, Listen, for you who do not have an issue with this, don't eat, don't, don't eat of it when your brother's around. Just abstain from it. When he's not around, eat of it. But if it's going to be a stumbling block for him, just don't do it. A more modern and recent example. Oh, I'm about to make some people mad. More modern and recent example, and we dealt with this at a previous church of mine. Masks strongly encouraged but not required in worship service this Sunday. Sound familiar? Maybe y'all dealt with that here. That was before my time. I don't know. But masks are strongly encouraged, but not required. Uh, at the time, we had made that decision at the church I was serving on staff at. And because uh, we had some who said, you must wear the mask. I will not come unless you wear the mask. Others said, I'm not going to come if you make us wear a mask. 
Uh, a little piece of cloth keep you from Jesus, but okay. As a pastor, I chose in that worship service and around other people when I was not speaking to wear a mask. Because for some people around, it was a make or break deal for them to not wear a mask. If you weren't wearing a mask, you know, you're, you're, you don't care or whatever. So I just wore the mask. I had nothing binding my conscience to wear a mask. I did not feel obligated to wear a mask. But for the sake of my brothers and sisters who that was an issue for, I chose to be the bigger and stronger brother and wear the mask. Does that make sense? You have to come discerning the body. We have to come keeping each other in mind. What is sin, and I'm talking about things in what Scripture does not prohibit, and what may be sin for you may not be sin for me. We need to live with each other in mind. We need to live with each other in mind. That's what Paul's saying here. We come and we come clean and we come pure. We stay away from intentional and unintentional sins. The things in which may cause others to stumble, we stay away from as well because we don't want to put, put a stumbling block before them. We don't want to cause them to be hindered in their walk with the Lord Jesus. So we come clean, we come pure. We come in right standing with God. Is there any sin that you've not confessed to the Lord? Is there anything you've not repented of? You may say, well, I can't possibly tell the Lord that. The Bible says he knows your thoughts from afar. He already knows what's going on. Confess it to the Lord. This sin, repent of it, move on. Embrace his forgiveness. In Psalm 34, Paul said, uh, David says, King David says that when he kept silent, his bones became brittled and his strength was drained as in the summer's heat. That's the wrong verse. I may have said the wrong verse, but it is in Psalm 34. It's actually verses 4 through 5. But He says, when I kept silent about my sin, this was after he went to bed with Bathsheba, my bones became brittle, your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was drained as in the summer heat. So confess your sin and repent of it. God will forgive. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can confess your sin to the Lord, he knows. You also need to come to the table in right standing with your fellow man. This is probably the messiest part of this sermon. You have to come to the table. You must come to the table in right standing with not only God, but also with your fellow man in as much as it depends upon you. So let me ask you. Who do you need to forgive? Now, pastor, you don't know what they did. You're right. I don't know. But the Lord knows. Pastor, they haven't asked for my forgiveness. Oh, so the commands of the Lord are only applicable in certain situations and circumstances, especially the command to forgive. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, in fact, you should underline this in your Bible, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, this is what Paul writes to us under inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Let me read that again. 
By the way, the Lord's been teaching me this in my own walk with him, okay? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. You need to let the offense go. For unforgiveness is a weird thing. We, we hold on to the offense and we think that we're punishing the other person. And we're not. We're not. We're making ourselves sick when we do that emotionally, spiritually, even physically. Unforgiveness can have a physical effect, a psychosomatic response. Paul tells us in Romans 12, <clears throat> Paul tells us in Romans 12 that it, our vengeance isn't ours. He says, friends, don't repay evil for evil. In fact, here it is. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not yours to avenge. And let me ask you something. Lest you think you're all high and mighty. Jesus also says that if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Do you want the Lord to forgive you? Out of a pure... Listen, listen. R.T. Kendall in his book, Total Forgiveness, noted that Jesus, Jesus didn't appeal to a spiritual reason. He just appear, uh, uh, appealed to a self-serving reason for humans. He says, listen, you want to be forgiven, you have to forgive. For your own sake, forgive so that you can stand before the Lord with a clean conscience, totally forgiven. Forgive, regardless of the offense. It doesn't mean that you approve of what they did. It doesn't mean that you can necessarily have a relationship with that person again, but it does mean that in your heart you can forgive. And listen, as I've been prepping for this, the Lord's been messy in my life. I'm like, Holy Spirit, stop. <laughs> I don't want to forgive these people. Oh, wait. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ Jesus. Lord, I don't want you to remember my sin. Why am I remembering their sin? Forgive. Let the offense go. Do you need to ask for forgiveness? You think you're perfect? I know I'm not. Am I perfect, honey? No. I'm not perfect. You're not either. You're not either. I'm reminded every day I'm not. As far as it depends upon you, Paul says in Romans 12, 18, live at peace with all people. As far as it depends on you, if at all possible, as long as you don't betray your conscience and betray Christ and his kingdom, live at peace with all people. That's how you come to the table. You have to come believing and you have to come clean and pure. If you're not a believer, you can't come to the table. If you are a believer, are you clean and pure? Have you forgiven? Have you asked for forgiveness? Have you confessed any known and unrepented of sin to the Lord? Now we're going to do the Lord's Supper a little different today. And Deacon, you ain't got to get up and move right now. I'm going to tell you when you got to move. We're going to do it a little different today. You know, you may be thinking, as, as we think about this, you know, the people I need to forgive are dead. Well, you can forgive them in your heart right now. That, that might be hard, and it, and, and it is hard. Or I, I don't know these people, I, I don't see them anymore, or anything like that. How, how can I forgive them? It might be that to call and to say, I forgive you, is just not the wise thing to do. In fact, in a lot of instances, it probably isn't. 
but you can do it in your heart. You can choose to let the offense go. As God the Holy Spirit empowers you and enables you to do that. Maybe you say, and we're, we're going to take just a few moments in, in a minute, and we're going to do some self-examination. It may be that you say, I need to ask for some forgiveness. Okay. Then you can commit in your heart and to the Lord in this time that you're going to do that, either today or this week. And there have been times in which we have, I've come to the supper table and I've had to do that and I've had to say, Lord, I won't take care of this later today. And I'll go ahead and I'll partake and I'll take care of it that afternoon. This is serious. We come remembering what Christ has done, but we also need to come being clean and pure. We proclaim the Lord's death. We look forward to his return. So as we get ready to do this, I want you to hear the word of the Lord. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord so let a person examine himself, and in this way let him eat and drink from the cup. For, who, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 29 And I said we're going to do it a little differently. So we're going to read together some scripture before we go to the Lord. Can we do that? Okay, can we do that? There we go. All right. We've got Psalm 139 that we're going to read together first. It's going to be up on the screen for you. At least I think it is. I hope I circled it. Together, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Thank you again for choosing the podcast of Four Mile Creek Baptist Church. To learn how to have a relationship with Jesus, simply click the Jesus tab on our website at fourmilecreek.org. Until next week, may you continue to follow Jesus and make him known in the everyday stuff of life.